millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite our history and heritage professionals to get angry. The podcast that is frequently taxed about misrepresentation. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here, as always, with my rebellious redcoat himself, Kyle Glover. Hello, everyone. Well, dear Ragers, if you are listening to this on the day of general release, then it's the 4th of July tomorrow. And what better way to separate ourselves from all our listeners in the US than to do an episode taking on some of the legends of the American Revolution. So to do this, we are welcoming actor, producer, 18th century history nut and upcoming author, Chaz Mayner. Chaz, welcome to History Rage. Thank you very much. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's, it's, it's nice to officially be able to get pissed about something. Or enraged. And just a little note out to all of our American listeners there as well. We got an American to come on and do this, so don't <laughs> abuse us, right? Yeah, listen to the accent. This is coming from home turf. Yeah, well, I I live half the time in Miami, and, and some Americans would wager that's not really a part of, of the United States, but there you are, it certainly is. Mm. You live the other half of the time in New York as well, which probably has a similar definition. Well, it should be actually what the the ever loyal city of New York mm-hmm. under under Cornwall. New York has a spotty New York, like its fans, like except maybe Yankee fans, always go for who's winning at the moment. So, vested <laughs> interest. No, it's a pleasure. It's a, such a pleasure to be here. It truly is. Thank you very much for the opportunity to to put into words the thing that's always. Uh, bugged me as soon as I found out early on in life when I found out what yeah uh, how much the American Revolution was uh was taught and you know as part of this narrative that's supposed to make us you know the apex of Republican history you know small r well we'll get in get into that in a moment I mean we've we've been friends for some years now after we met at Chalk Valley Three years ago, I think it was. Yeah, that was. I really um, love your And show. we've shared many a beer and many a whiskey and many a cigar to date. 
Uh, and to date, you're the only person who's been on History Rage that's met my mother. What a privilege. So, uh, well done. Well, this is battle. Cheers to you, mother. But given that your background is in acting and stage and so forth, how do you end up in 18th century history? Well, I consider myself a child of history. I'm, I'm par- I'm, my parents were exiles, so I was bicultural, as it were. Uh, I had my, my, my grandfather uh, was a Cuban insurrecto. Uh, my great-grandfather, I beg your pardon, was a Cuban insurrecto against Spain. Uh, very much a, a Republican small r. Small R Republican, because when you're Cuban and or Cuban descent and from Miami, people just assume you're 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 capital R Republican, and I can I'll say I'm not, but uh, certainly a small R Republican, and uh, and my father was active against uh, fascism and my mother uh, fascism in Cuba, autocracy under Batista, and then of course within a year and a half he fell afoul of the Castro government and he had to leave, and and they came overnight with. Very little money, and but um, happy as 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 punch to be able to exercise their civil rights. Right, that was guaranteed as part of the mm-hmm. revolution. And then I was born six years later, and so from from the first, my father made it a point, my parents made it a point for me to understand whence I came and and why are you an American? You must understand how this country works, where it came from, and and he was learning along with me. You know, um, that and I. So it was wonderful. We were both active uh, history students. One of the things, of course, that, that we bristled at is how the Boston Massacre is a misnomer. The Boston misnomer. Well, we'll get we'll get, we'll get to that. <laughs> but I can I can see you I can see you itching to go for I'll this. Today. So so right um, right we're going we're going we're going to get on this right. I the, this is whatever history rage is all about. Tell everybody out there then, since you can't wait, what. The one thing you wish people would just stop believing is go. The Boston massacre was a massacre. It certainly, it most certainly was not. My lie was a massacre. Wounded knee was a massacre. The, the Seventh Cavalry in, in in Texas when they did uh, the when they executed the war against Black Hawk that was a massacre. Uh, the British. In Boston, uh, did not, was just reacting as armed men, eight armed men and, and an mm-hmm. officer was trying to keep of a peace from an enraged crowd. Historians vary this between several hundreds or nigh on a thousand. That seems a little bit too much of a, because it was particularly cold that night, but I'll get to that in a second. Mm. So we wanted, in my family, we wanted to get the record straight because we were very happy to become Americans. So one of the things that, that I came home and I, and I said, Dad, guess what? I mean, the British killed like a lot of people in Boston. He said, when? So we, we both, you know, I was like 10 years old and he was, he was not, he, <laughs> he was in his twenties. And, and then that's just another example of how my parents and I were learning to, um, to become American. Uh, of course, I was born here, but culturally I was not. We spoke Spanish and, and, home and I and I learned a lot about Latin American Caribbean and specifically Cuban history but at the same time I was learning how to dispel uh, you know the narrative that that every country not just the yeah. United States does you know um, the, the glory of, of republicanism being ensconced here in, in the US and you know which I we always I always rejected even as a kid as a kid and I and I and I'm very glad 
for my parents who, who installed that critical faculty in me. Anyway, but stories were told. History were stories. And, and the way we, I, I came to realize history quite by accident is that it's, it's rather a John Lockean view of history. History is happening, as it were, on a field. It's happening before. So the Boston uh, riot <laughs> with a squad of British soldiers is actually occurring right now. I'm just further down the line. And I think that's a very healthy way to look at it because it gives uh, any person a live agency. We're very much the effect of a cause. And that means that what you do, well, then that's going to have an effect for, you know, ever, you know, it, it, adopting that responsibility, I think, is part of becoming a, right. a, a viable citizen in a democracy, but more importantly, a, a full human being. Anyway, it, it was storytelling that led me into acting. Uh, very quickly, I was actually going to join the Marine Corps, just like every other inner city kid who was aping a I came very close to having a Dickensian childhood. <laughs> I thought I had a good public library nearby. Um, but, you know, I didn't have any money for, for school, not at all. But it was, uh, I, I, I tried out, I always liked storytelling. I would become the stories. I said, my, you know, I decided, let's go for an acting scholarship. I was in one play. I liked it in high school. And I, and I got it. So I had to go back and tell my Marine Corps recruiter that I was joining the theater arts department of the university of miami <laughs> he just he's taking oh, oh that's well, that's good that that's uh yeah uh-huh that, that's really good and he probably put me in some kind of like suspect file or some you know i don't know what to <laughs> some definite you know, communist yes, right yes, or, there. Or, or vaguely homosexual or something like that and and uh which i mean who cares about that? I, I'm, I'm in the theater. and uh, Well, at the time, the Marine Corps cared. At the Marine Corps. This is <laughs> yes. before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, right? Uh, yeah. But uh, moving away from that, I, I, uh, I went, into, um, went into drama, but I always kept my studies in history. Uh, kept very active in history. I was thinking about a uh, history minor. But, uh, and, I, and, and in fact, I did. I took some history classes, and then I went for my grad school, my graduate studies. Uh, where I took uh, courses in uh, postmodernist literature, and I and I got a literature degree, and then that led to research, and then uh, my my professional life has been divided between performance and production, and also uh, writing one person shows around historical personages, yeah. right? Um, influential in American, particularly Florida history and New York history. So I, I've, I'm very happy to say I've never let go of historical research because, again, I think of it as literary research. It's, it's part of a story, you know, and, and certainly military history, uh, the best military history, the best histories, stemming back to Francis Parkman, are that. They're narrative. They're, they take you from A to B to C, and, and then you draw your own conclusions, right? And then you move on to the next book. So that's how I came to history, and, I'm, and uh, that's why I love Chalk Valley, and that's why I love the United Kingdom, because history is so much of the lingua franca there. Not only because it's millennial, you know, old, but more than that. It's yeah. rather like the spice of life, I find, as, as a foreigner when I come um, I realize that uh, you don't have to be a nerd to get be into history. Everybody knows what happened on the street in London or or Salisbury or or what have you. I mean, you're surrounded by precedents, right? And, uh, yeah. and we don't have that here. Okay, so so you come on to rage tonight, essentially about the Boston massacre. Yes. Okay. Now I know because you've 
you told me about it at the, uh, the sort of previous meetings. But there, there's a background to this that when you first got pissed off about <laughs> the Boston Massacre and that from that. So to to kick us off then, just just tell us the background to you being pissed off about this. Well, I, I show up to junior high school history class and I had a wonderful teacher. Uh, Doctor, can Dewey. you just for the for the Brits, which are the bi- biggest part of our audience, I know. Can you just explain the age range that is junior high? It between eleven and twelve years old. Um, so that would be would that be okay. second? Form? Yeah, no, that would be first form for you, right? Wouldn't it? Yeah, something I think, <laughs> something like that. Uh, so right before we go into what we call high school, which I believe would be second form for you, is that correct? We, uh, uh, if you're of a certain age, we're now up to like you know, like year eight and nine, and even I don't know what yeah. that is anymore. Yeah, secondary. I'm forty nine. You're a child. Yeah. Um, no, well, I had this this Mr. Giordino, who was, who was a very funny man, and he dresses up as a colonial, uh, you know, with the stockings and and the buckled shoes and the tricorn hat, and comes in with a baton, and he's portraying Doctor uh, Doctor Livingstone, who was a patriot in Boston, and he actually dies in the Battle of Breed Hill, or otherwise known as Bunker Hill, another misnomer, and um, he starts reading out Paul Revere's. Uh, scandalous, papagrandistic uh, verses that uh, can still be read under the very famous, I'm sure everybody's seen it, that very famous engraving that he did. And engraving becomes, is really mass media at this at this time, especially in mm-hmm. the 13 colonies. I should say the 15 colonies, because Florida yeah. were the 14th and 15th. But, but you could engrave something in Boston, and you could take those plates. You could take it to Georgia within a week on a fast on a fast uh, uh, carriage, you know, which could be printed the day after. So that's pretty mass media you know, uh, for for the 18th century. That approaches uh, well, what have you? He comes out and he reads, "Unhappy Boston, see thy sons deplore thy hallowed walks beneath." The guiltless gore, while faithless lobsters and their savage bands with numerous rancor stretch their bloody hands. You know, and he goes on and on and on and on. You know, and uh, and then he 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 you know he carries. Maybe he had a bad day, but then he he describes what was essentially an unprovoked attack on Bostonians who had of a right as free Englishmen the right to protest. Yes, of course, they did have the right to protest, and very and and they were indulged very much. So they would go to the common and protest. But this was a provocation. Again, Kent State was a massacre. This was not a massacre. This was a reaction to uh, uh, what became uh, certainly from the from just objectively a, a terrible provocation of hundreds of people surrounding. Uh, a squad of of um, of eight soldiers. They were they were set up in two forms of four and four. And we'll get to that later. Mm. I, I I'd like to go over the narrative of the events. Uh, it happened on March fifth, seventeen seventy. And if you'd like, I'll go right into it. Yeah, please do. The acrimony, the actual violence, occurs three days before. It's never mentioned that way. It certainly wasn't mentioned for Mister Giardino. God bless him. May he rest in peace. On March 2nd, an off-duty soldier, I should, I should take this back a little bit, in that 
the itinerant workers, Boston, of course, being a population of 16,000, had the 14th and the 29th foot in Boston as a police force, essentially. They would go out and patrol without yeah. uh, musket ball, without powder. So dry pan, bayonets, and they had a beat. They had a walk. Still, from the Boston point, Bostonian point of view, you, you're seeing one out of four citizens that were British soldiers. So that's significant. That's significant. But the thing is, they're, they're British. Yeah. <laughs> they're seeing their yeah. own police force. And yeah, point that we'll come to a yeah, little later on. Many yeah. of the, but the thing is, Boston was full of young people. Particularly young. Oh, people. they're always trouble. They're always trouble. The rabble, as it were. But they they were basically farm boys that wanted to make their fortune in the closest city mm. possible, right? So you, you've heard of Lexington and Concord, but there's also Farmingdale. Yeah. There's a lot of little, little satellite uh, farming communities, hamlets. So they would come to Boston to work on the docks to fix the the these these three story houses. Imagine three story, four story homes. You know. Good God. So, yeah. So, but what happens is that the British army allows soldiers to pick up work from civilian, from civilian owners, from, from the civilian population. So you've all of a sudden, you've got one out of four of them, right? They're, they're a whole workforce. And what happens? They have to lower their prices. So you can have your, yeah, I'll build, I'll build mm. you a bed, says Private Riley, you know, of the 29th, right? And I'll build it for you for two pounds or, or a pound and a half, right? Whereas the boy from Farmingdale would have built it for you for, for two pounds yeah. or less. Uh, yeah. I, I think I'm yeah. conflating yeah. the, the prices too much. But you get the idea. Yeah, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's dumb Brits coming over here stealing our jobs, yeah. isn't it? But I mean, they're not Brits. They're, they're soldier boys. They're lobsters. Yeah. The lobsters was a term, of course, that was used uh, and, and pejoratively in the British Isles itself as well. So, I mean, they're, you're dealing with uh, out-of-towners, right? Uh, they're also here... Uh, because there's a certain class of the same that those itinerant workers, those specifically sailors and dock workers, that are bristling by these new acts, specifically the Townsend acts. All of a sudden, it, it gets more expensive to import trade into Boston, so less ships come in because everything had to be taxed in order to pay for their own defense. Well, guess what? They would say, and I'm afraid they had a point there. We defended ourselves against the French and the Indians. We fought at Cartagena. Nobody speaks about that. We fought uh, uh, conspicuously well in the siege of Havana. We fought conspicuously well on the fields of Abraham in Quebec. We also we were also there in Montreal. We were also there when we tried to take Fort Duquesne. We were also with Braddock. Among them, a, a little mm. known, obscure uh, petty officer called George Washington. So, and, and not only that, the most important thing that the Americans did is send a peace commission to the Iroquois, or the Iroquois Confederacy, sometimes it's called. They were the necessary buffer between French Can uh, Canada, French North America, essentially, right, up until the Mississippi River, to the littoral British colonies. Without that, without that safeguard, without that buffer, no British, and, and I, I include ourselves in the colonies, we were very much yep. indeed British, right? 
were would have been able to carry out those those fabulous campaigns and 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 uh, Dan Snow's death or victory for me still remains a definitive study on what is the most exciting campaign in North American history, including the Civil War. It's just like, out of this world. It's like something out of Risk. You know, <laughs> it's wonderful to read. But none of that would have happened were it not for the for the colonials. I, I really feel very strongly about that. Why yeah. was the population so young in Boston? Because a lot of their sires and grandsires had died in the war. The American uh, uh, losses in the French and Indian War per capita was more costly than the British. Mm. These are things yeah. that fall through the cracks in history because both sides yeah. have a point, right? It's one of those moments where you've got two good guys fighting each other over the gray. It's really rather odd. And I don't call it the revolution. I call it that little... That little era of of, of nasty unpleasantness. That, <laughs> that little era. But uh, you had young British people, you had young Eng mm -hmm. Englishmen and women in Boston starting a new life. The women, of course, saw the armies as a way of, of finding a husband. But that was the maelstrom of, of, of passions, right, that you had. Yeah. And in, on, for instance, one of those uh, British... Uh, uh, soldiers that walked into a, a rope maker on March the 2nd, and I'll, I'll remind you, the, the Boston quote-unquote massacre happened three days later. He walks into a, a, a rope walk looking for a job. Uh, the rope ma uh, maker asked him if he wanted work. The soldier said, yes, very much indeed. And the rope maker said, John Gray, the owner, says, well, you can clean out my shit house." Right? So the soldier, you know, struck back, punched him right in the head. And he was attacked by the other workers that was there. He was beaten to an inch of his life. Walked away, or I should say stumbled away, and came back with a few salt word fellows, right? Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, what, and, and people started taking out clubs. Cutlasses were used. And people were beaten on either side to a pulp, right? As of March the 4th, things had slowed down. But the evening of March the 5th, you had roving bands of AWOL soldiers trying to get in the lick. And some of these young hotheads that were also called, politically, they had an entity called the Sons of Liberty, which was really a gang, mm -hmm. right? And they were trying to find each other. And those poor British soldiers <laughs> in the middle, and, and American colonialists, and, and, and the peace officers that were there, you know, they, they were... They were lying to them. Oh, they went that away. And they, they we're talking about, you know, pockets of 40, 50 scores of people trying to find each other. Yeah, there's some serious gangs wandering around here looking for a fight. Isn't looking there? for a fight, you know. So what happens? March the 5th, they're itching for a fight. And they one, one fellow called Edward Garish, an apprentice uh, rope maker, right? So we're talking about the mm -hmm. same kind of industry. And rope, of course, is linked to mercantilism. To the, to, to, these are people who are being laid off because not enough ships are coming in, not enough ropes need to be replaced. Walks by an army officer who, alone, who happens to be on guard in front of the customs house on King Street. You can still visit there. It's in front of the old state house, right? What happens? Um, he walks by, uh, uh, one private Hugh White, beg your pardon, private Hugh White. The officer comes in later. He's a sentry. And he says, um, he screams out, why, why aren't there any gentlemen in your mob of an army? And for that, he gets a, he gets a clout in the back of his head. He walks by 
another group of soldiers that come running and clout him again in the head. And he starts yelling that he's being, that he's being attacked. So people in the adjoining areas start calling for, uh, those, those sons of liberties because here, here, here's a British soldier being, mm. you know, looking for a fight with, with this poor, by the way, Edward Garish was 15 years old. This poor boy is being mauled by these, by these regulars, these lobsters, and they start amassing around the poor man. We have to rescue him. So out of 20 comes 30, comes 40. And the, the crowd within five minutes, 10 minutes, is about 50 people surrounding this, this private white. You know, and they start calling uh, the gangs around to come around and, and to beef them up. Right. So they start screaming things. And all of this is important because it all comes from the court records that we'll talk about later. So this is all first primary sources and testimony. They start uh, uh, yelling out sentinels of shit, damned rascally scoundrel lobster son of a bitch. Cannon fodder for, for tyranny, all this sort of thing, you know? I mean, this is a provocation. They're threatening him. Yeah. Try to break around and see what's going to happen to you. See how we're going to clout you. They start, they start assailing him, uh, with snowballs. Um, I should, I should mention the very important fact that it is March the 5th in one of the worst snowstorms Boston had, had experienced at that time. That particular decade experienced a lot of weather fluctuations and there were, thro and, and the, the snow was turning into ice. Boston didn't get street lamps until 1772, so we're in the dark. Yeah. Poor man is completely, well, not poor man. I mean, he, he's struck yeah. back, but still, I mean, you understand. He's, uh, he's being provoked and, and, uh, and he's being besieged by hundreds of people. And there is a Captain Thomas Preston, not 200 yards away from Faneuil Hall. Now, he's the officer in charge of the night with express orders to avoid a confrontation, to be a buffer from these these uh, out of off-duty British soldiers looking for a fight against these gangsters, right? These roving bands, and he's watching to see how far he can get in. When when he sees that White is is his knees are buckling from being buffeted now by hundreds of people, right? He calls in a, a squad of eight men in rows of two. His idea was to go in, rescue White, and come right out. You break through the crowd. You create a corridor. You rescue White, and that's and, and you keep him inside the two rows, and you march out. So, mm -hmm. what mistake did he make? One mistake is that instead of doing a corridor, he created a wall. So he creates a wall of eight. Kind of makes sense. You want to see how far gone is is White, and can he walk? Right? Can he can he stand on his own two feet? Is he how badly is he hurt? Right? Yeah. At this point, he's on the ground. His 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 hat is off. His wig is thrown somewhere. It's dark. You don't know where it is. Where's your rifle? You've lost your rifle. That sort of thing. And in order to safeguard that, you create a wall of eight soldiers. And by now, you have you have the gangs coming in. You've got those roving bands saying, "We've got it. We've got Englishmen about to uh, uh, lobsters, British soldiers, redcoats about to fire on on our crowd." Right. Somebody yells fire, thinking that there is a fire in the custom house. And what happens? Well, somebody fires a shot. No, no, they, they said ah. fire. There's a fire. There's a fire. So up comes the colonials that were part of a volunteer oh. fire brigade with axes. 
and clubs and swords and, and buckets of water and this sort of thing, right? So if you're if you're standing on a line and you start seeing unarmed bands of men with axes and 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 crowbars, that looks like an aggressive act. Whilst they were coming in to put out a fire, you understand. Um, and so what happens is that one of the more uh, cool heads steps in front and addresses Captain uh, Preston. And when when that happens, when Captain Preston was not looking over his men, up in comes a, 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 a snowball, and uh, a, a number of snowballs, I should say, and hits Private Hugh Montgomery, who's at the end of that line. Yeah, let's call it the north, the north end, if you could see it. King Street runs athwart uh, north and south, and he falls because they're sitting on icy. On you know, their their footing is icy. He falls, and when he regains his feet, okay, and this is there are two testimonies. One said that he fires a shot when he falls because they were at half cock. So something happened yeah. that that he was holding his weapon on the hammer. And that as he fell, he pulled back the hammer and shot. That's one testimony. The other testimony is that he fell, and when he stood up, out went the shot. But the shot didn't hit anybody. It just fired. So you see a man that's down. You hear a shot. One of your men to your right that you're depending on. You're closed ranks. You're feeling for each other. You've got yeah. now 900. and it, and, and it could have been 900 at that moment because this takes 15 minutes. Now think about that. How many U.S. cops stop for 15 minutes to deal with somebody? They pistol whip. I can tell. I can tell you that because we're told do not confront police officers because they can snap. Okay, we're talking 15 minutes. I mean that's indulgence as far as I'm concerned. Mm. You know, uh, as anybody would, and indeed John Adams did, who later defends the uh, the soldiers in question. Fine. When that fire is shot, there's a pause. And they all the testimonies agree. There's a pause. And within a second and a half, the whole line fires. As soon as the line fires, 11 men are hit by musket ball. Three are perished right at the spot. 48-year-old Crispus Attucks, who happens to be, ironically, the first American colonial to, to die in the conflict. He is an African-American and native. He's a, a, to use an 18th century racist term, I... I Mulatto, and I and I and I I'm citing the source because I don't uh, I don't speak in that yeah. in those terms. Nor should we all. He's he's biracial, right? So, he, but he's he's by all intents and purposes African American. He's also Native American. He dies right on the spot. He is 48 years old. He's a freedman, and he had worked for his liberty, right? And he was a whaler, a sailor, and was doing rather well. About to get married. Samuel Gray, 52 years old is shot on the spot and dies. He is, ready for this, a rope maker. Yeah, figures. Right? So he was there. James Caldwell, 17 years old. He's a sailor. We're talking about people who are directly influenced by the Townsend Act and uh, 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 and that and that Townsend Act being enforced by what they see as an occupying army, right? As would somebody in Manchester. Yeah. Okay, so this is not, we're not Americans and British yet. We're, we're all British here. Yeah. Samuel Maverick, uh, that, a 17 year old, uh, dies a few uh, hours later. And Patrick Carr, 30 year old, 
who's a tanner, dies nine days later. Particularly interesting is Mr. Carr because he was trying to ameliorate both sides. He was, he was a peacemaker. He was trying to, to tell people to, to, well, to chill, we would say it now, right? To leave the passions low, right? And when, before he dies, he's key because this is the reason why these soldiers are, are exonerated because he speaks the truth. He says it's not, it wasn't the British. They were openly provoked. They stood their ground for, ten, for over 10 minutes, he says. Approximation. He was right. Mm-hmm. And then he dies. So all, all credit to him. When that happens, the crowd disperses. Uh, disperses. Some don't. Some continue throwing rocks. Some of, their, some of them are saying, uh, fire another goddamn volley and, and other uh, expletives. And uh, they're, they're whisked away. No, no one on, no British soldier is, is, uh, is hurt. And for the next 24 hour, there's, there's public disorder. There's, those bands are now, uh, that I mentioned before are now, because of the, the mischaracterization of the events are now swelling in their ranks. So people that were on Mm -hmm. the fence are now turning with the bands, right? And within days of the effect, the governor, Hutchinson, who was acting governor at the moment, is forced against his will, against his, his, his opinion, against his policy indeed, to, to ask all of the officers to move to the bay. There was a fort there, a military fort, across from the Boston Common, right? Yeah. So in one way, the quote-unquote occupation wins, right? But in another way, two sides are formed. Now, I don't think the Boston Massacre should be regarded as the match that set off the revolution. It should, it should not be thought of that way because it wasn't a premeditated attack on, by British on British. It was not the policy of the police force mm-hmm. on the 29th and the 14th. And to say anything other than that is calumny and a disservice for people who want to study the actual events and for those who appreciate the subtleties of this conflict. And I'm, I'm right in understanding this. Because they were defended by John Adams and therefore there was, there, there was a court hearing, there was a trial. This is, the details of this are all a matter of public record. Absolutely. Now, you could see those. You, you could go look this up. Yes, yeah? you can very much. Now, there's a, every, every state, erstwhile colony, has an encyclopedic collection of their papers, right? It's called assembly, depending on the state. So you would have the House of Burgesses papers if you're from Virginia. You would have the legislature, the assembly uh, papers mm-hmm. if you're from New York. Uh, you could, you could go and do that for the Massachusetts colonial papers, but, but luckily, there is something that was already amassed for you over 60 years ago. And those are the legal papers of John Adams. And that was edited by uh, two scholars, two uh, judicial scholars, Roth and Zobel. And there is a, and these are folios, they're huge, and there are uh, a page and a half of this. But since these volumes are so large and oversized, it's, it's equal to say, Oh, I don't know, 20 pages, 30 pages of a, a photo yeah. edition. But, uh, and I'd like to send you these primary resources, if I may, in, in your... Yeah, and we'll put, we'll put um, kind of links to them in all the show notes that we can. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. If I can, if I can just in, staying with the Boston theme. Yep. Okay. Because... The massacre is not the only Boston-based myth that comes into the independence movement. Not at all. I'm going to talk Boston Tea Party. Yes, indeed. Okay, so as far as we're concerned over here in, in, you know, there's lots of screaming about taxation with representation. The Bostonians stick 43 tonnes of tea into the Boston Harbour. The entirety of Britain goes, for Christ's sake, milk in first, please. (laughs) And then boom, hey, independence. <laughs> okay, I was waiting for that, but that—that's not what it is, is it? You know. <laughs> well, the Boston. There's another. I'd, I'd like to take this opportunity to to uh, break that myth as well. I have bad news to tell you. They weren't Pequot Indians. What? I don't know if you know that. That. Uh, Good lord, no. <laughs> yeah, scandalous, isn't it? Isn't it eye-opening? Yeah, there you go. Took about 280 years to find that out, whatever it is. Um, 254. Um, let's go. Let's go back for a second. The Townsend Act acts were um, were rescinded. And can I footnote? Do you know when the king decided to repeal the Townsend Act? Do you know when? I don't. It's not my area of expertise. March the fifth, seventeen seventy. The very self same oh, oh. night. <laughs> yes. I have a quote from His Majesty, <laughs> the King. The town said duties which bear upon the manufacturers of this country, such as duties upon glass, uh, red lead, etc. A butt for tea is an object of luxury. In all commodities, uh, it is properest for taxation, meaning tea. The duty upon it is very light, and such it can bear very well. All right. Lord North says, I wish for harmony. But I see no prospect of obtaining it, even if, even when I do rescind these town said acts, referring to the colonists. If I thought that I could appease the fractious and disobedient temper which prevails, I should be glad to do it and prove myself to be what I am of the best conviction, a friend to trade and a friend to America. So tea is considered, everything is repealed against tea. Tea is considered a a luxury tax. So what, what happens? The East Indian Company, right? persuades yep. Parliament, and specifically Lord North, that they have an overabundance of tea. They don't, it's sitting, and it's, it's sitting in, 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 in our harbors in Great Britain, right? And we, we can sell it cheaply to, to the colonies who were tea drinkers. I, I'll, I'll remind you that the population of the, of the colonies was 2.5 million, and tea was their what what Americans uh, drink is coffee now. I mean, it was it was the first thing they had yeah. in the morning. It was a it was a part of life, right? And so the British, uh, I guess the Exchequer, right, or the uh, yeah. what we would call the Department of Treasury, allows the tea 
to come to the colonies to be sold at a cheap price, sales price, wholesale. So we're not talking about just a box of tea. Mm -hmm. They would, at a minimal fraction, that would allow them to, uh, to, to make a slight profit of just 2% on the tea. But why were the Americans so upset about it? It's not, and please, Americans, my, my, my fellow countrymen, please understand this. It wasn't British perfidy. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't, we weren't being a tool of British capitalism. It's the fact that the majority, up to 95% of the tea that we drank in the colonies was smuggled in. It was illicit tea. So all those, and we're talking about from Maine down to, to Florida, including Florida. So we're talking about this illicit trade that was going to now uh, uh, be displaced by yeah. actual viable trade, right? So you had a yeah. lot of people that were upset. It's what happened in Colorado, where you had, the, where you had these pushers of marijuana attack <laughs> these legal factories now and, and, and yeah. growth areas, you know, that were now putting yeah. them out of business. So the Sons of Liberty were of that class. They were erstwhile farmers and farmers' sons who came to the city to make money. What's the quickest way you can make money? You work for the smugglers. You're on hand, you know, as a stevedore, bringing in those casks of tea. You know, all of a yeah. sudden, the market is glutted. Down goes the price of tea, Right. Because now people don't have to risk anything in buying it legally for a, a, a nominal, a negligible tax. They're pissed, and they go in, and they dump the legal tea. That is the reason why the Boston Tea Party occurs. Now, that, that, that does answer a fair few queries I had about it. Because, I, first of all, I always thought, if you're going to make this a grandstanding protest for liberty, why disguise yourself as Pecan Indians in order to do so? And secondly, well, was it wasn't actually that was yeah. yeah, it wasn't actually British government tea that they tipped in, was it? It was privately no, it was, owned yeah, by it's somebody India. else. Yeah. Yeah. It was East yeah. Indian tea. It was yeah. <laughs> East India Company. Sorry, not I, I don't want to confuse that it was a tea that came from Eastern India. Mm. It was the East India Company. Yeah, very much indeed. So, you, would you, you know, would you go on record and say then that the Boston Tea Party has got absolutely sod all to do with the revolution movement? Not a thing. Except, <laughs> Thank you. except it allowed, it must have been a lot of fun afterwards. Go to the pubs and get drunk and, hey, hey, guys, see what we did? Dude, <laughs> dude, that was fucked up. Was that crazy, man? That's, you know, I mean, there was a lot of. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, it's another example of of creating a narrative. Every country does it, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, for instance, famously, when at the rise of the British Empire, you have Conan Doyle writing these 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 uh, romantic views of early Saxons coming from northern Germany to establish this new land that would later, or you you have uh, Anglo-Saxon, you have Picts. Celts um, uh, throwing the Romans back into the channel. You know, it's because we are who we are. I mean, it's normal. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the it's yeah. all countries indulge in that. Everybody does it, and like you say, history is written by the winners. So, well, no, that... I, I would well, yes, but I would add it, it's written by the gabbers. It, it's written by those that that maintain the narrative. Mm. It, that maintain that certain narrative. For instance, uh, uh yeah, for instance, in in uh, y you know, in Vietnam, for instance, uh. 
I've not been. I have a friend who does business there, and he tells me, you know, they love us here because they realize that our guys were drafted. They weren't told that. You know, they yeah. they they just thought we were evil and and that we run a world domination. And uh, and now they really get us. You know, uh, David Zerler from the Caltech Heritage Project made similar comments when he came on and yeah uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. A language um, works the same. A narrative works the same way as language. The American McSorley, who's a wonderful, wonderful linguist, says in his book, The, the Power of Babel, play on Tower of Babel, uh, a language is created by babbling, by, by the act of speaking. Well, the same thing works with a narrative. A narrative is, is ensconced and unfortunately becomes calcified in the, D, in the cultural DNA, uh, much like a language. And that's what's happened here. Yeah. Yeah, we've spent we've spent quite a while discussing the, the colonists thinking themselves as British. They've been denied their rights as British people, so on and so forth. But when did they start to view themselves as separate? When did they start to see themselves as Americans? Well, it's 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 a wonderful question. On it's it's a great question. Mm. It's a necessary question because from the first that geographical term American then then became a political term. It became a, uh, well, and then later a racist term, right? Because it was attached to certain pejorative features that were assigned Americans, uh, mm. as, as, even during the middle of the war and slightly before. Um, if you were, you, you, an American was considered like a uh, Lancastrian or, a, a, you know, a, a Scottish yeah. person, right? He was just geographically from that part of the world, right? But it was assumed that he was British. Especially after the Battle of Culloden, these were our people here that went back to the 1600s. But as soon as Parliament, as soon as the as soon as the rise the, up to the Annus Mirabilis, the, seven, the wonderful victories of 59 to 62, uh, 1759 to 1762, that rise of empire calls for a codification of what is British. And so these American volunteers, by the way, every militiaman from all these 15 colonies, I'm sorry, 15, they weren't, Florida was not yet part of, of, of the British North America, forgive me, 13 colonies. If you were of age and in the militia, you either had to stay home and guard or go off with the regulars, right? It was just assumed that you would do that if you were of age. Yeah. And if you were, then you had to prove that you needed to be home. Anyway, so. That being the case, if we were co-combatants, if we if we were actively engaged, indeed engaged in our own defense, not just making money like they're they're accusing of, uh, us, and the way they're pointing their finger at us, they essentially are making us the yeah. other. We are marginalized. So the beginning of what was later called the revolution, it's not a revolution until July third. 1776, not July 4th. July 4th was when it was first read aloud. July 3rd, when it was enacted, that we are by, by right free and independent states. Speaking of the Constitution, I'll use that as a segue. So when do we become the United States of America? When is, in other words, when is that, uh, uh, when is that term yes. first used? Closing paragraph. Of the Declaration of Independence reads, I'll just read you the first sentence of the closing paragraph. After that long list of grievances that the Continental Congress and uh, the catalogs, it says, We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America. Now let's stop here. 
The adjective United is not capitalized. Ah. Okay? It's in, it's in yeah. small case. Right? What is capitalized is States of America. So, entities, autonomous entities of America. Yep. That's the way to define states at this moment, right? In general, Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, due in the name and by authority of the good people, capital P, of these colonies. Yeah, so they're still being colonies yep. at this stage. Capital C. Yeah. We're talking the Declaration of Independence. Solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies, capital U, capital C, are and of right ought to be free, capital F, and independent, capital I, states, capital S. So, the United States of America, and I think what you're saying is when the United States of America being synonymous yeah. to American. I, yeah, I believe when you that's become United Statesians rather yeah. than... Right, United Statesians, right. So when does yeah. that U become capitalized? It is capitalized by hook and crook, by the practicalities of having a Continental Congress having to engage with foreign countries, which later becomes a war of revanche, la guerre de revanche, with France, with the Dutch, with Spain, and so John Dickinson, the representative from delegate to the Continental Congress, who was in charge of foreign policy, right? All of a sudden you have foreign yes. policy. You have to be an entity. You just can't say Delaware. Yeah. And you can't use the word colony because then yeah. it counteracts what you're yeah. essentially doing, yeah. which is separating from the British, from the Great Britain. So what does he do? He capitalized for the first time in the papers of the Continental Congress is the United, capital U, United States of America used as an entity, in this case, to draft for a Dutch loan. So there you have it. The, remember how I said the power of yep. Babel? Yeah. It is the usage of language that creates the United States of America. It is the usage of language which esconces for democracy for the next hopefully thousand years the few that depended our, that that defended our way of life yep. in 1940 it is the use of language that broke the it is language that broke the berlin wall yeah i really believe that uh, and and uh, that better minds than i do believe that mainly daniel bennett in his studies of memes and mcsorley as a linguist so here's a here's an example of an entity being born through discussion, through the dialectic, through the necessity of creating an entity to uh, wage war and, and indeed prevail. Okay, now while you've got the Declaration of Independence in front of you then, I do hope you haven't st stolen it national treasure style. Yeah, rubbed it with, <laughs> rub it with lemon juice and, uh, and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everybody who's uh, handled a historic document looks at that and goes, ooh, no. Yeah. But we're British. This is yeah, only yeah, 1776. Whatever. It's not as historic as some of the things we've got. <laughs> for, us, for us, it's year yeah. one. For you, it's yeah. year 935. Yeah. <laughs> God, T-shirt's older than that. So we we sit over here in Britain and, you know, view, view you guys as some upper upper colony. But there's got to be more than just taxation representation to this. Otherwise, we'd see revolutions all over the place. So... There's a huge, as you say, there's a huge list of things that they were pissed off about. What were George III and Britain actually guilty of? The latest, there was a chance for peace as late as 
oh, nigh on the Declaration of Independence in the same year as 1776. And that was the olive branch decree from, content, from the Continental Congress directly and specifically addressed to the king. Why do I say that? From the Continental point of view, a legislative body who had friends. By the way, these, can I backstep? We were Whigs. <laughs> Until the yeah. of it, we were Whigs, you know? And, and, uh, and as Whigs, we felt that no one was above the law, right? And that includes the co common citizenry of Great Britain and us. So we thought that the king would understand. The king was still yeah. the king, his majesty. Uh, Hanoverian George III would come in and would correct that horrible, horrible, horrible man, Sackville, who was just uh, 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 an awful, awful man. He really, truly was one of the most talentless people to hold such a, such a, such a, the Ministry of the Americas, I mean. By the way, he was court-martialed in the Seven Years' War and, and suggested that he should not go anywhere near His Majesty's services. But that's an aside. Um, that the king would actually step in and correct the situation. Well, the king uh, didn't even accept the king. He said, I, I, I don't want to filthy my eyes and looking at it or something, I, I paraphrase. And word got back. So it was... Yeah. It, it, it was... Up until the last moment, a chance for cooler heads to prevail. Now, the cooler heads did not reside in, by then, even Benjamin Franklin, who was the very figure of reason. He was on board for independency, as was Jefferson, as was now John Adams, you know. Mm. Uh, but you still had a lot of the southern states, starting from New Jersey, saying, we should stop this. This is getting out of hand, you know. What happened at Breed's Hill were not... No prisoners were taken and everybody, you know, we incurred the wrath of the British Army, which was uh, unbeatable, right? We're incurring a terrible plague upon our people and it doesn't have to go this way. But alas, that happened and the cooler yeah. heads uh, lost favor in the Continental Congress. And months later, we had um, the Declaration of Independence. You know? So I'm not, blame falls on both sides. I do believe that you can't tax people without representation that is yep. that is a very uh, that's that's an, an infringement upon well, going back to the magna carta you you don't do that to englishmen and <laughs> when you just you it's I mean, we don't like paying tax at the best of times but we at least like have somebody we could get fired if the tax gets out of hand that's right we need a reason we need and, and not just stated we needed to be legitimized and it wasn't legitimized upon but the now we did have what we would call you know an influence in in parliament you know we had and among them was at one time jefferson we did have we could influence part uh, mps we could do that and, and indeed we did and i say we now but you know what i'm saying the 13 colonies yeah so we could lobby certainly but we had no vote and uh I think that's a that's a genuine point because where does it stop? You know, as as early as 1761, you had James Oatley in Massachusetts saying the writs of assistance allows British uh, harbor police to come in and check our our ships. So we have free trade, but how free is our free trade? Well, I mean, that was a measure taken against smuggling. <laughs> but there you are. Blame lies on both sides. I think so. Okay. So, how do we get from how do we get from this right. situation from 
uh, open rebellion against the government, founding a new country, becoming, as you say, United Statesians, the War of 1812, in British involvement in the Civil War, all, all this kind of stuff, we're not really getting on. How do we get from that? Even the Pig War. Yes, especially. <laughs> the pig especially war the funny. Pig War. We like the Pig War. Yeah. How, well, actually, the, the answer yeah. is found yeah. in the Pig War. Yeah. How do we get from that to the special relationship <clears throat> we have today? Let's start with the Pig War. We all know what happened in the 1812, which was actually an act of war by us, James <laughs> Madison's war, which was uh, not uh, very smart. We thought that uh, we had some grievances with, with, uh, with our, our sailors being impressed. And, but that really was a war for uh, who would control the sea lanes. Uh, Yankee merchantmen were, were doing rather good. But anywho, the Pig War... By 1856. So for the people that are out there that don't know what the Pig War is, very brief summary of the Let's Pig go War. into that. So there are some islands uh, between the Canadian 49th parallel on the western side of the continent between uh, Vancouver and uh, Oregon, what used to be Oregon there, uh, which is part of uh, Washington now. And in these islands, they were, uh, they were always in flux there were, because we, did, we didn't have exact maps. I mean, this is the time before satellites and stuff like that. We have, we have a farmer called Cutler, an American farmer, who arrives in one of those islands. It wasn't even a named island, so we don't know exactly which island it was. And he plants potato. Now, on that selfsame island, you have an Irishman called Griffin, who's a pig farmer. So his pigs wander over to the American, uh, uh, American's farm and starts eating the tubers, right? The potatoes and sweet potatoes and all that. Well, Cutler shoots him and kills him. And Griffin comes with, uh, with, with a writ from the police saying he's got to be uh, remunerated. Or, and, and Cutler says, well, all right, I'll give you, I'm sorry, I'll give you um, $30 for the pig. And that's equal to about $450 today in today's money. And Griffin says, um, I, I won't take anything but $3,000 because of the principal. And he said, well, listen, I'm not, I'm not going to give you $3,000. And the next thing I'll shoot is you if you come to my land again. <laughs> so the complaint is taking, taken up to Governor Douglas of the area. Governor Douglas thinks that this is the beginning of an American immigration, very much so like we did with Texas. I'll remind you mm-hmm. that in the, eight, right, in the, in the early, late 1830s and, 19, and, and, and early 1840s, we had huge American immigration from the Ozark area into Texas. And then later that develops into the uh, Texas Rebellion and later Texas, the state of Texas. Yeah. So, I mean, there is historical precedence there. So the Americans uh, find out that the, somehow find out that the Royal Navy, uh, the Pacific Fleet of the Royal Navy under Admiral Payne is being sent, right, to establish peace there and, 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 um, and express the, the autonomy of British autonomy in the area. The Americans send a, a very small fleet of, of, uh, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it 40, 40 ships or, I'm sorry, 40, 40 guns on three right. ships, you know, into the area. And when Payne sees that, he, he, he sends a messenger to Governor Douglas and he says, Governor Douglas, I will not escalate the conflict into a war with another great nation over a pig. We fought wars over less. They go back. Now, look at that. Look at, look at 
look at the idea that was already accepted in, co- in common speech. Another yeah. great nation. You see what I'm saying? There's a legitimacy in British eyes, indeed, as far back as the end of the, of the revolution, because a quarter of British people understood why this happened and thought the war was unjust, particularly the Whig mm-hmm. area or, or a hard kernel of the Whig uh, party. Uh, and indeed, what happens to Benedict Arnold when he goes away and he goes to he goes to to Britain? He's marginalized. He's hated. No one goes to his funeral. No one uh, admits him to polite society. I think we, I think we are different peoples of necessity. Mm. We're different, but we both admire the same things. And I think that was always there. That's why John Adams and the Federalist Party wanted, by all means, to patch it up with Britain because we had a bigger enemy. And those are the French. This rabble is now becoming uh, organized by an autocrat, yeah. Boney. And, you know, even though he sells us the Louisiana Purchase and that mollifies something under the Jefferson administration, and he does that because Jefferson's party, the Democratic Party, is pro-French, you have in the United States pro-Britain, pro-French, mm-hmm. you know, vying for each other, you know, for political, political ascendancy. The Federalists... Uh, morph eventually into something like the Whig Party. There's a resurgence of the Whig Party in the United States. They're pro-British. Uh, the Whig Party uh, becomes a Republican Party in 1859. They're pro-British. And America sees, America apes the British Empire in their Western expansion and into the Pacific. There is enmity later on. I mean, are we going to have to fight for predominance in, in, in the Pacific, that doesn't happen because I think the British intelligently feel like that's, that's uh, an area of importance for the United States and much better to have another Navy working yeah. with them, with the senior service uh, a, 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 and a shared foreign policy. And we see that, of course, in the, in the uh, pugils for the Boxer Rebellion. rebellion. I, I think uh, uh, political expediency, and certainly in the Second World War, not an un, not a small amount of idealism. There. I don't. I bristle at the term special relationship. I would rather be mates, or rather be friends. Uh, I'd rather be partners in in our idealism. But then, you know, my wife accuses me of being too idealistic <laughs> and romantic. So with that, I shall. Buy it. Well, thank you very much, Chaz, and uh, loyal Americans. You can all come back now. Well, a lot of them went to Canada and the Bahamas. But yes, what happened to the pro-British uh, colonists after the well, Revolution? Florida? Yep. Florida is divided between East, East uh, Florida, the capital being Saint Augustine, and West Florida, the capital being uh, Pensacola. Pensacola was a very important British station against the, uh, and along with Jamaica, creating an axis against the uh, Spanish and and the Bourbon Pact with, with France. The Spanish become a very important ally. In the American or co-belligerent in the American Revolution, so um, a lot of them go into the Bahamas. Better life all round. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you very much. Did you do you enjoy that? And did you do you feel better? You know, I just feel this great lift off my shoulders because somebody listens. <laughs> yes, yes. uh, we could guarantee you at least five people will listen. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to know more about this, then you should uh, look out for Chaz's upcoming book uh, on Custer, which we're hoping will be uh, released 
over the course of the next year, and we'll be highlighting that when it does get released. You can see him speak at many history festivals when he gets over to the UK, and you can see him talking General Custer on Adventures in History Land with our prior rager, Joss Proven, as well, and we'll have a link to that episode in the show notes. But once again, Chaz, thank you very much for 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 bringing the rage. <laughs> thank you very much indeed. Yes, thank you. It's been brilliant having you. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you're up for some taxation about misrepresentation, then please consider joining the Angry Mob on Patreon, as this really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our regular prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and of course the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage but until next week ladies and gentlemen stay angry bye bye thanks Paul planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.